So there was a lot of speculation before the the Hubble was launched about what learn and what that would do to our kind of understandings of the universe and of the origins and and even the the causes behind it, you know, in terms of, you know, are we going to learn something about God? There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. This is Good Heavens, a podcast that takes a deeper look into things about heaven and earth that Horatio never dreamt of. Math, what comes to mind? Many of us disliked the subject in school and to this day claim that we're no good at it. But there are also many who have relished in the beauty, logic, and coherence of mathematical language and equations. I am not one of those persons. (laughs) But whether you are parsing verbs in English class, studying the literary prose of Jane Austen or, say, Herman Melville, or solving quadratic equations in math class, or performing experiments in the science lab. You are, in one way or another, studying the way in which God created the universe. Why does our language of number, word, and story seem so eerily applicable to the vastness and grandeur of the cosmos? Why do we seem to have such a wonderful front row seat here on Earth that enables us to peer out upon the beauty and the splendor of the universe? Is mathematics something man has created, or is it something we have only recently discovered, like a gift? As the Bible describes, Jesus has bestowed us with a bountiful storehouse of gifts, enabling us to explore and enjoy what he has made. Quote, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to men. End quote. James tells us that quote, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. End quote. Truly, the heavens and the ability to explore, study, and delight in them are all gifts to us from God himself. And if God has given us his only begotten Son, how much more so will he freely give us all things? Science and faith in Christ are indeed compatible. And what we see in the cosmos is also compatible with what we read in Scripture. The 17th century theologian Tommaso Campanella wrote, Human science does not contradict divine science, nor do the works of God contradict God. Therefore, although theology in itself does not need proofs taken from the human sciences, nevertheless, for our sake, theology does need to do this so that we can strengthen our convictions by understanding the supernatural in terms of the sensible and natural. For God made man to know God. End quote. 
It is clear that modern science, for the moment, seems to have affirmed what Moses knew millennia ago, that the universe, our universe, the only universe we know of, did indeed have a beginning. On part three of our discussion with Dr. Leslie Wickman, we talk about mathematics and the laws of physics, and how modern science tries to grapple with the remarkable practicality of mathematics without reference to God. We also discuss the importance of how we as finite creatures plagued with sin must humbly get out of our own way and let God be God when discussing the glory of God, a topic that really is over all our heads, quite literally in more ways than one. As we begin part three, I ask Leslie about the uncanny applicability of mathematics for modern sciences of the heavens today. Here again is Dr. Leslie Wickman. It goes in the same classification as the laws of physics. You know, why, why do the laws of physics seem to work? And, and if they work, where do they come from? And why are they the way they are? Why, yeah. are, why do they govern the, the relationship between space, time, matter, and energy the way that they do? Instead right. of just having utter chaos, you know? I mean, why is there order at all? So all of these, these questions that are essentially unanswerable, from a materialistic perspective, kind of go in that same category. Um, and so you, I think as a human being with a rational mind and a spirit, that those questions either drive you to explore further, to, to find the answers to why, um, or they cause you to just ignore them because you mm. don't want to explore what the answer right. is. I think, I, mean, right. I think there is kind of this widespread uh, uh, feeling that, you know, if there is an almighty God out there that created all of this, what does he want from me? You know, mm. and what does mm. that mean at a personal level? So you either keep exploring and you try to answer those questions, you know, either from a materialistic perspective that may eventually lead you to a spiritual awakening, or you push them down and you just say, I don't want to go there. Hmm. So, I mean, I really, I mean, I don't think there are a whole lot of options, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it is, it is a, a challenge. It was Sean Carroll a couple of years ago in a blog post, and I've quoted this often. He says that uh, asking for a reason why, talking about the Leibniz cosmological argument, why is there something rather than nothing? Carol suggests we it's a it's a, a piece of metaphysical baggage that was his exact words that we need to we're better off discarding. In other words, it's just a brute fact. I, th- I see that more popularly now. People just sort of accepting things as brute fact and sort of downplaying this why question about you know. But 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 Leslie, I think from Aristotle and any time we've we've had codified language, we're we are asking these big questions and asking the big questions isn't just going to go away because right. a, a secular physicist exactly. says uh, we should stop asking them. Exactly. Uh, but that's a metaphysical proposition, and my response to that is how does an astrophysicist or a cosmologist know what kind of metaphysics empty space prefers? Mm-hmm. Good point. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just you cannot eradicate this intuitive human sense uh, I think of Psalm 8 and, and David, mm-hmm. who as he's contemplating the cosmos, 
he asks the same why questions, though he's talking, he knows who he's talking to. Yeah. Why are you so, why are you mindful of me, Lord? Yes. When I consider your, your heavens, yes. uh, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast created or ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yeah. Um, you've crowned him with glory and honor and made him a little lower than the angels. I think there's a little bit of a messianic psalm in there as well, but that was a, um, a Buzz Aldrin when he went to the moon on Apollo 11. He wrote that on a scrap piece of paper and stuck it in his his little suit pocket Love couldn't it. take a bible to the moon but he he had that yeah. uh verse with him i don't know where buzz is spiritually now but yeah. uh, you know that 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 seems to be embedded in the cosmos leslie that when we look up at the stars i mean that's where most of us experience the universe and unfortunately we're under a canopy of gray green muck that most of us can't see stars um to the extent that the ancients did but um yes i mean if you look around um at the just even the other planets in our solar system you know i mean just in in terms of even the um uh visibility of the the night sky you know i mean you're not going to see anything from the the surface of venus because of the thick cloud cover you're not going to see anything right. from any of the quote unquote surface of any of the gas giants right right uh, and if you're on mercury you're going to burn up uh if you're on mars you're going to uh uh, essentially become freeze dried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, You're right. <laughs> so, so just the fact that we have a uh, transparent atmosphere, even even if we have, uh, you know, smog, uh, air pollution, and light pollution, at least we can, we have the possibility of seeing the night sky. You know, and and what a marvel that is. I mean, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Uh, living for all of human civilization under a, a cloud canopy where you couldn't even see the stars or the moon or mm. the sun clearly. Um, I, what a different kind of experience that would be for all of humanity. And so just the simple fact that, again, God pr- provided this um, environment where we can have a clear uh, yeah. to be able to see the stars and have that inspiration. I mean, from, right. from back, like you, you know, talked about David and other writers, um, you know, from the beginning of, of uh, human literacy, uh, marveling mm. at the, the night sky and how that draws us heavenward in a sense, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, well, that, that brings me to a couple of other observations. If you want to touch on them real quick. Um, that we've had some beautiful imagery come forth from the James Webb Telescope, as most people uh, have uh, seen these images. I'm sure you have seen them and probably have poured over them like uh, the rest of us and like, wow. But these were all, uh, I didn't know at first, but these were all images that Hubble had had already shown us. But these are in sort of HD, yeah. as everybody knew they would be. They are in a, a, a different kind of light, if you will. And um, one of one of my favorite images uh, that uh, the web took of, and I'm so glad they did this, was this Stefan's Quintet. Uh, the, that uh, five, the five gal, I think it's five, five galaxies that are sort of clustered together that are interact. They call them interactive galaxies. Um, but these were the galaxies for for our audience. These were the galaxies that are featured in uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" in the beginning, where they're uh, they're talking to each other and. 
and talking about uh, George Bailey. Everybody's concerned about George Bailey and uh, and praying for him. And so the <laughs> the heavens are talking and communicating, and they send an angel down. Um, so it, it it is it is. I mean, it's it's, it's bad theology, but it's still kind of cool in some sense because it does talk about how the heavens are speaking to us, and we are spending billions of dollars uh, trying to listen to to what the universe is saying. So. Um, briefly, what is the significance of, of James Webb? I know that and just in the last couple of days, they said that they have found galaxies with enormous redshifts. Um, I don't know if they expected to find galaxies that far and away in the universe, but uh, this is stunning news. Yeah. Um, that uh, things are starting to be uncovered that don't easily fit into our current paradigms, but they're discovering more and more things because the telescope has better technology. Right. Uh, what do you see? I know you're no, you're no Swami or anything, but what do you see in terms of the significance of James Webb and what it's uncovering for not only just science in general about our, our knowledge of the universe, but about God's glory? Yeah, so I have to kind of um, preface this part of the conversation with a kind of a fun story from back in the day when I was working on the Hubble Space Telescope before it was launched. Okay. So um, as most people know, um, the Hubble Telescope was delayed in terms of its launch date by a significant number of years. And um, people that were working on the telescope um, as, as I was at that time, um, you know, would, would kind of have these conversations about, kind of a metaphysical uh, speculation on why this, the telescope was being so drastically delayed and Mm. and people would even, you know, the, in the uh, completely, you know, secular world of, of NASA and Lockheed um, where we were putting it together um, would make these comments about, you know, Oh, you know uh, it's been delayed because um, God doesn't want us to see what's out there. And, uh, you know, um, wouldn't it be interesting if we, once we do get it launched, you know, we'll be able to see so far that we'll actually see this, this uh, sign at the edge of the universe saying <laughs> that the creator is currently out. <laughs> you just, you know, just kind of have these conversations about, you know, why is it, is it like the Tower of Babel, you know, yeah. and that, you know, uh, the timing wasn't right for us to kind of have this knowledge. Um, so there was a lot of speculation before the, the Hubble was launched about what hmm. we learn and what that would do to our kind of understandings of the universe and of the origins and and even the, the causes behind it, you know, in terms of, you know, are we going to learn something about God, you know, through this? Wow. Yeah, so those conversations were were pretty common, actually. And so kind of, you know, springing forward from that to the James Webb, I mean, I think we can be expected to find some things that we're going to have to wrestle with, you know. And um, I mean, I think this is true for kind of being on the cusp of any big adventure. I mean, think about, you know, the explorers in Columbus's day. You know, mm. uh, launching out to find a quicker route to the, the the what, you know, they thought were the East Indies, right? And the um, trying to get to uh, Asia uh, by mm-hmm. going around, you know, and then hitting the quote unquote New World, and and you know the, all of the speculation about oh, you know, maybe the Earth is flat, and um, you know, maybe you'll fall off the edge. Uh, and, you know, all these things. And so I think, you know, we kind of have to 
be expecting the unexpected. You know? mm. And I think, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned in terms of uh, even more distant galaxies than we thought could even possibly exist. It's like, yeah, well, get used to it. You know, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. learning some things that maybe don't fit into uh not necessarily the box that we put God in, but the box that we put God's creation in. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I we've done a couple of podcasts, uh, very non-technical, but just kind of in the wonder and awe category about structures that are now listed. I think there's maybe 10 or 15 of them where uh, colloquially people are calling them things that are too big for the Big Bang, uh, qu- quasar groups and galaxy clusters and clusters of clusters of clusters where they exist in parts of the universe where structurally, I know there's debate about whether or not they're structurally interrelated or not, and there's a lot of data being put forth, but if these are strings of quasars or clumps and clusters of galaxies, they are in parts of the universe where, quote-unquote, there has not been enough time for these things to have developed to the size and extent that they are. So there's already, you know, there's already been things that are sort of uh, questioning uh, Einstein's assumption of uh, isotropy. And, uh, you know, the structure is is starting to uh, not, it doesn't prove everything wrong. I mean, like you said, it it, it begins a new adventure in in widening our our sense of um, uh, cosmos, the cosmos and the universe. Do you think, Leslie, with this this new data coming in, would you be so bold as to say that, uh, cosmology is on the cusp of a paradigm shift. Wow. Um, I, let me put it this way. I would not be surprised if that were the case. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's kind of a widespread misunderstanding of, of how the scientific method works even, you know, and how, I mean, if you look back um, over scientific progress, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember the name of the book now um, and who wrote it, uh, but it, it's, uh, it talks about the uh, Copernican principle and um, uh, how um, scientific revolutions work. Oh, Thomas Kuhn. Yes, yes. The nature of scientific revolutions. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. And just how, um, you know, uh, science is not this linear progression that we sometimes tend to think that it is right. And, Mm. and that really we go through periods of uh, stasis uh, where we operate under a particular paradigm. Um, And then we have uh, accumulating evidence that, you know, not all the data that's coming in now actually fits with that paradigm. Mm. And, and then the the paradigm uh, becomes a paradigm in crisis. And, And we, you know, as we gather uh, new evidence, then we are forced to say, okay, well, you know, is there a new paradigm that could explain the data better? And that's really the way the scientific method works is, you know, we're not, we're not to, trying to prove anything. In fact, that is mm. not what the scientific method is set up to do. It's, it's a, a very inductive and, and possibly abductive process where we're trying to make the best sense, the inf- uh, information that we have, the data that we've already collected, Mm. Um, and, and, you know, fit uh, a paradigm with the best explanatory power to that. So we go through these periods of stasis, then crisis, then scientific revolution, where we, we might make a, a, a step function like jump to a new paradigm that has greater explanatory power for all of the evidence that we have. And so, mm. and so, yeah, I think, you know, 
I, I, I think it would be really fantastic if we uh, made a leap forward like that. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think so too. I think I'm excited and a little nervous myself. You know, I, I love space images, and uh, we uh, for our book, uh, we we uh, I talked briefly with uh, Dr. Anton Kokomor, who processes images for Space Telescope Science Institute. I think he's still there, um, but we quote him in our book about uh, you know he's a Christian and he he sees the universe as God's artistry. You know, and he he gives talks on that. It doesn't represent uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute's views, but um, he as a Christian who works with these deep sky images, um, you know, uh, talks about them as, as God's heavenly creation, that this is a Sistine Chapel of magnanimous proportions. Yes. Uh, we, we are only beginning to see, um, you know, this, this beauty, this wonder, this awe. You mentioned something really quickly that about Thomas Kuhn and the nature of, of, of scientific methodology and, and paradigms. Uh, I have, there's a philosopher that I'm fond of who was, he was a Catholic, uh, he was a chemist turned philosopher, philosopher turned chemist, or he was both at the same time, uh, Michael Polanyi, mm, yes. Pol- who, who his, his philosophy of science is, is very refreshing to me. I, I, I like the idea that he interjects this, the sense of knowing epistemically that a lot of scientific advances, um, go forward on hunches or creative intuitive sense perception that don't that can't be easily accounted for like carving up a, a carbon atom or dissecting a frog that that the intuitive creative hunch of the scientist uh this tacit uh this tacit knowledge it's not hard it's not easy to articulate you have this hunch in the shower einstein is playing a violin and he gets this idea or somebody has this remarkable aha moment right or, or fritz wiki you know coming up with this term dark dark matter just sort of creatively or Fred Hoyle just in an interview going, you know, Big Bang and mm-hmm. um, George Lemaitre with this cosmic egg. These, the scientists seem to have this, uh, like the artist, like there's a yeah. lot of artistry yeah. that uh, that I'm sure like a first chair violinist in a big city symphony couldn't sit down. He could tell you how he plays the violin, but does that mean you are going to be able to play like him? He would have a hard time yeah. explaining to you yes. how to sound like him. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a lot of the times science. I could tell you what I'm doing at, at, with Hubble or Webb, but when I'm processing these images and I'm looking at these things, um, I'm, I'm using my creativity and my imagination that doesn't really have a, a niche in the scientific method, but yet that seems to be so fantastically essential to how science advances yeah. as people thinking creatively. What do you think of that? I absolutely do. And I think, you know, it's part of the Imago Dei, you know, being created in the image of God. You know, he's given us this, this creativity that reflects who he is and calls yeah. us all the more to engage in this, this process of exploring. And, you know, again, you know, uh, you know, one of the verses that I love, taste and see that the Lord is good, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and in Thessalonians, uh, uh, test all things, hold on to the good, you know, I mean, scripture encourages us to check things out for ourselves. And again, this passage in Proverbs that talks about, you know, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to search it out. And I mean, it's just, it's almost, I I feel like it's trite or, or trivializing to say it's this cat and mouse game. But at, at the same time, I feel like it is this interplay that God has very intentionally set up for us to, you know, it's like, wow, look at this cool thing that I did. Mm. So check it out and learn about who I am. You know, and mm. I just I just think that there are things that just fit together so nicely. And you talked earlier about, you know, why can our minds apprehend 
the mathematics that is the language of the universe, you know, and mm. why can we understand these laws of physics that govern nature and that that were referred to um, back in, I'm trying to remember what, what the passage is that talks about uh, his covenant with day and night. Jer- Jeremiah, Jeremiah Yes, exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, how God has established God has established his covenant with day and night and and just the, the the laws that are referred to in Jeremiah in terms of how nature is orderly. It's not chaotic. And I mean, that's why right. we can do science in the first place is because things are repeatable. We, we live in an orderly universe that we expect things to go the same way each time we test it. Absolutely. Yeah. And God invites yeah. us into that, you know, and I. Right. Yeah. I, right. He, he, he is, uh, it, it's, um, um, you know, I think of the verse, he ascended on high and led captivity captive and he, he gave gifts to men that the, the father of lights, uh, gives, gives us gifts mm-hmm. and, and longs to give us gift. And, you know, if he has given us a son, how much more so will he freely give us all things? Yes. And, uh, the delight of discovery, I think of how wonderful it is. Just look at the concept of Nobel prizes that people get reward, rewarded for making discoveries. Yes. It, these things are laying about, uh, waiting for us to discover, whether it's uh, literature, whether you've created a work of art or you've, you've created a, a literary work or you've discovered something in science, that there's something intuitively, uh, something is a gift. I think uh, it was the writer, um, I, I, I don't know if Stephen King is a, he, he has claimed to be a theist. I, I've heard in interviews, but that was years ago. But he wrote a book called On Writing. And uh, whatever you think of his horror novels, he does make a point that he feels like the writing comes to him, that it's it's something of a gift. I don't know, know how he attributes that, but uh, having written a book myself and knowing how that book came about and, and just hearing your story about how your book came about and how you were contacted by CNN, it all just seems to be a gift. And it makes me think of Ephesians 2, where God says, he, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says through, he says, uh, that God has created good works for us to do in advance, even our salvation. It yeah. is a gift, not that anybody should boast, um, but that but that God has prepared good works for us to do and, and walk in them. I, I love Jeremiah 31 because it, it is talking about uh, the new covenant that God is going to do in Christ. And so like the fixed order, I love my favorite uh, constellation set is Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades. And uh, I love going out in the mornings and seeing them rise uh, in August. They, they appear after disappearing in May. They appear in August. And uh, August through December is my favorite time of year. So when those rise, I'm always reminded it's my favorite time of year again. And it's God's faithfulness, though, that we can we can gauge the moon or we can look at the stars. You know, it's, it's that, that God is faithful. The, the regularity of the universe reminds us of God's faithfulness to us in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the things that I think about when we're talking about looking at the far reaches of the universe, and, and actually it's something that Stephen Hawking uh, speculated about in his book, The Grand Design. I don't know if you ever read that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. um in it, he talks about, you know, the, the fact that the uh, um, cosmic uh, microwave background energy is clumpy. Okay. Mm. And, um, you know, when we, when we started getting uh, images of the uh, cosmic microwave bike background energy and saw this clumpiness, it was, it was another one of those questions of what, why, you know, 
if if the universe began in this big bang explosion why isn't everything perfectly evenly distributed throughout the universe why do mm. we get the inf- and in fact it's another part of the fine tuning that basically if we didn't have a clumpy universe we wouldn't get the formation of galaxies and stars and planets and and everything that you know provides a life uh, friendly universe um but Stephen Hawking talks about, um, he kind of speculates about the idea that maybe part of the reason that, um, that our universe is clumpy um, and it you know, goes back to this uh, background energy that we see as clumpy is um, you know, maybe we're colliding with other universes. And obviously that's a completely speculative statement, <laughs> but wouldn't it be cool if we could uh, somehow observe more clearly some of this clumpiness and and see if you know maybe is it possible to observe collisions between our universe and others and you know could that in fact provide some evidence that maybe we do live in a multiverse and wouldn't that be exciting you know i mean (laughs) i mean for some people they're like oh no that's too big and scary of an idea you know or or maybe oh that's too that's uh, too comports too well with a materialist um, perspective of, you know, having an infinite number of other universes just to get more chances to get the numbers right in ours. But to me, again, my view of who God is and how amazing he is in this creation has led me to say, take him all the way out of that box. He, he ain't safe, yeah. but he's good. And we right. can trust him. And if he mm-hmm. built a multiverse, then God is the God of the multiverse too. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the, the the one concession that I think we can take with the secular cosmology of multiverse, or if you want to go with uh, Hugh Everett's Many Worlds, uh, which is a, a quantum theory of uh, that Sean Carroll espouses, whatever you want to say about these things, one thing that strikes me is, is consistent – and we mentioned this at the beginning a little bit, where, okay, you're conceding some kind of virtual infinity, if you will, or some kind of eternality. Or in the case of Hugh Everett's Many Worlds, you have multidimensional realities where there are other beings, maybe even our doppelgangers that are out there because of the nature of these things. Now, it's a little far afield to think that there's more than one of me out there. I wouldn't want to know that. (laughs) (laughs) But but the point being is that there's this, it seems like inevitably secular cosmologists or cosmological theories come back to the necessity of having something unseen, infinite, or, you know, our universe used to be considered eternal. So you need something unseen, infinite, and eternal. And like we said earlier, this all seems to sound a lot like uh, the God of the Bible. Right, that exists outside of space, time, matter, and energy, and therefore could have caused it. Absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, the problem is how does matter, something has to be eternal because right. how does matter create itself out of nothing? Yes. And uh, saying quantum foam doesn't do away with that problem because right. you're like, where's where'd the quantum foam come from? Exactly. Well, quantum foam, is a, has it always been there? Or are we ascribing eternality to right. quantum foam? Right, exactly. I mean, and so we end up putting attributes of God on the things that are made yes. to try to explain what we see. And and to me, I think, I think you'd said it before in another interview that I watched where um, 
it's the it's the exact antithesis. No, it's the quote in your book. The exact antithesis of Occam's razor right. to postulate a multitude of worlds just to explain ours. Now, we can we can be Christians and be comfortable with a multiverse because God is in charge of whatever he's created, but for an explanatory power as to why our universe is here, it seems antithetical to the Occam's razor to postulate many infinities in order just to explain this. Right. Is that Yes, is that right? and that is actually a quote from Paul Davies. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, astrophysicist from Arizona State um, is actually to be credited with that quote. He's he's a great guy, um, and I think he would I think he would call himself a theist. I I I don't know um, exactly what his his faith commitment is, but um, yeah, he seems highly concessional to theistic ideas. I don't know if myself if he believes it, but he does seem to at least he can steal man. A theistic position pretty well, I think. Yeah, and so. I've I've crossed paths with him a few times, and uh, oh, okay. actually, in fact, it was interesting. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Well, the, the most recent time I crossed paths with him was at um, the Templeton meetings. Uh, okay, uh, you know the Templeton uh, mm-hmm. foundations are very interested in the big questions and in connections between science and faith. And uh, he was at a meeting uh, with the Templeton Foundations that I was at in June, and and we chatted a little bit. And um, oh, yeah, he's um, like I said, I I I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I I think he's at least very friendly to theistic positions. So yeah, that's what I've seen in his writings. Yeah. Well, Leslie, thank you so much. I know I've gone over time with you, but. Uh, it's fun. I could go on and on and on for hours and hours and hours. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> we haven't even started, uh, really. That was just the introduction, by the way. So uh, <laughs> now let's get into the book. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, we covered quite a bit. We talked about time and and uh, you know free will and uh, and multi dimensions and multiverses and the glory of God. Um, quite a, a wonderful and enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that you would like to uh, excurse us into before we leave? Um, anything that we didn't talk about? Uh, well, in the book. Yeah. No. I mean, I guess one of the things that I just like to close with is is just helping people to understand that they don't have to choose between science and faith, that science and faith are in fact compatible. And the more you study both of them, the more you'll see that for yourself. And Mm. I think especially for young people that maybe haven't decided what they wanted to do with their lives yet. um, Don't, don't think that uh, science and faith are mutually exclusive. It's possible to be a great scientist as well as a faithful Christian. Yeah. What would be your advice to uh, to to in-house for for all of the brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who see uh, competing scientific paradigms creating walls between believers? I find this to be somewhat tragic sometimes in how we throw mud at each other. But uh, how would you how would you see be some real quick advice about how we could better be better to each other about our differences in terms of how we view science and Genesis? Well, I think um, having conversations uh, in in a very humble and respectful manner, which is maybe easier said than done. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I've done that has I I think worked really really well is um, inviting um, 
somebody that has done some homework in this area, uh, like myself, or there are many other people who are uh, in this field of science and and faith, Um, but inviting a person like that to your church and then having the the pastor sit on stage with that person and ask questions and have Mm -hmm. a conversation because First of all, I think by by having the pastor share the stage with somebody, the congregation has uh, a, a feeling going into it that um, there's a good relationship there already between the two individuals and that the people respect each other and that this is going to be a calm conversation that um, you know, is, is kind of set out with the premise of let's learn from each other. Let's talk about this. Let's not try to uh, tell everyone in the room what they need to believe and, you know, how they need to think, but let's just have a conversation about, you know, how these two worlds intersect, intersect with each other. You, you never know when something's gonna hit somebody. In fact, I did a, a, a podcast, about a week ago with, um, do you know, um, Cameron Bertuzzi with Capital? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I did a podcast with him roughly a week ago. And I always, after the conversation is over, I always second guess myself. I'm like, oh, I should have said this, or I should have said yeah. that or whatever, you know. And, and so, and, you know, and then, you know, and I always afterwards, I'm like, Lord, please use it, you know, just, and, mm. um, so afterwards, I got an email from a student or a recent graduate, perhaps, uh, at, from Azusa Pacific University who looked me up and said that that she saw it and that she was just blown away and that, um, you know, could awesome. I give her some career advice or, you know, grad school advice or things like wow. that. Wow. And, and then I also went to, you know, his YouTube site where he'd posted it and, you know, people saying that it was one of the most interesting interviews that he'd seen and whatnot. So I'm like, okay, Lord, just, just help me get out of my own way, you know, and exactly. you know what I mean? Cause it's, exactly. it's yes. not about saying the perfect thing or, you know, doing the, the perfect show or whatever. It's, it's about how God can use it for his glory. Right. Yeah. Right. My prayer is that, uh, Lord, please use the evil that I think is so good that I'm so easily impressed by my, my own work. Uh, please use it anyway, even though, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know I yeah, no, I love it. You know, the thing is, I've gotten to the point where I generally, once it's done, I don't even watch it again because because I'm too self-critical. And it's like, it's look, it's not about me, you know. And and if if God can use me, like like I said, when I get an email from a, former student or whatever, whoever the person might be. I'm like, okay, thanks God. You give me the confirmation that you're using me. I don't need to go back and watch it and be all self-conscious about it. That just, I'm grateful for those experiences that I had when I was at Azusa Pacific, I got to, and you probably read this in the book. I think I mentioned it is um, I, I was in charge of essentially running a science, faith and culture seminar series that's awesome. And I have people from all over the world, experts, you know, for 
gosh, uh, you know, 15 years or more, you know, and, and I'm, I have the equivalent of some sort of a, you know, master's degree, at least because the, the, just the benefit of that. I'm so grateful for it. And one, one, one thing too, I wanted to mention in terms of kind of the whole, um, you know, getting out of the way and not worrying about, you know, how God's going to use it. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was, but, I, I was so impressed by it and um, I, I need to incorporate it into my own prayer life. Um, but this person was coming in to speak to a class or something. They said something, they prayed ahead of time in front of the whole class. And they basically said, Lord, correct any mistakes that I make. I'm, you know, I'm a flawed human. I'm going to make mistakes in what I say, correct those things, have the, have this audience not remember those things. And, you know, have them remember the, the takeaways, the important takeaways, you know, and, and I was like, that is such a beautiful thing, you know. My mom used to have a she needle points and she had this big needle point frame up in our house when we were kids. Um, and I can still remember it as a kid. I didn't know what it, really what it meant as a kid, but as an adult, I'm like, oh, I get that. Um, where it's like, uh, there's no limit to what a man can do or accomplish so long as he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that's true. If you're a Christian, you know, it's, it's, you can do anything, uh, you know, with God, all things are possible, but God gets the, the, the credit exactly. and, and, and the glory and, and, and we don't. And, um, you know, and, and, and so the Genesis fifty twenty is kind of my prayer, you know, Joseph's brothers where Joseph can say, well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. good. And so, Amen. Yeah. you know, so I'm like, you know, Lord, um, you know, use my evil for good, yes. you know, even though, cause especially I, I, what I call good is probably more like evil and, <laughs> and I don't, uh, I don't pray as I ought as the Holy spirit, you know, intercedes for us and, yes. and all that kind of stuff. So, it, but as, as you go along and you talk to really smart people, you realize, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer or the biggest cat on the block. Um, but, uh, I, you know, God gives us these things to do and, um, you know, he does, I think he's pleased when we step out in faith and, yeah. and, uh, allow him to use these conversations. Oh, I should tell you, this is so funny. Um, uh, I was just, I just went to Utah this summer. We drove there oh, wow. for a, a week long mission trip with, um, uh, to, to, to engage, uh, uh, Latter-day Saint friends. Cause my boss is a former fourth generation Mormon and our ministry is primarily targeted for interfaith evangelism with Mormons. And um, so we went first time to Utah, and I I want to drive. I don't like flying, so I drove, and uh, it was fun. I love to drive. So I'm in I'm in Lubbock, where Texas Tech is. I'm okay. getting gas, yeah. And uh, I get back on the interstate, and because of my knowledge of astronomy, about 15 minutes later, after just outside of Lubbock, I look to my left. It's the morning, and I'm and I look to my left on my driver's side. There's the sun. I'm like, wait a minute. If the sun is on my left side, I'm going south. Yeah, and I I shouldn't be going south. I should be going north to Albuquerque. So I pull the car pull the car over, and I'm like, "How did I do this?" And I was like, "Well, it doesn't matter." Siri uh, directions to Albuquerque, New Mexico. So she's like, "Okay, that's Siri." And then I get back on the road, and I'm looking at the directions, and lo and behold, what do you know? I'm going through Roswell, New Mexico. Suddenly, I went far enough south to where the directions corrected me, taking oh me up God. north through Roswell. Wow. But the, the funniest thing was, Leslie, is that I had just finished a podcast with Wayne before I left for Utah about aliens. 
Wow. Oh my so, gosh, I love it. <laughs> so I had bus- I had I had a few business cards left over with my story of the cosmos book and a and a link to our podcast. So I went to the the little Roswell Alien Museum and I handed out whatever books uh cards that I had to people that were in the museum. <laughs> and hopefully maybe, you know, I don't know what seed was planted, but but it, yeah. it was div- I was so I was so I was laughing the whole time because I'm like, okay, only God orchestrates this. Proverbs sixteen nine: A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Why? I had no intention of going through Roswell. I love it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that must have been so bizarre though to see the sun rising off to your left and go, wait a minute. <laughs> that struck me. I was like, wait a minute. The sun is on my left side. That's the east. And if if that's on my left side, I'm going. I'm going south. How did I go south? I don't know. I got turned around. The Lord has a sense of humor. Yes, indeed. Um, that, oh my that was God. funny. So I don't know who in the Roswell Museum, you know, took my card, listened to my podcast, but it had my book on there and our link to our podcast. But we awesome. talked about aliens. I love it. Uh, which we didn't talk about in your book. And I, yeah. I kind of wanted to get to that. You had, I, I really liked what you'd said about the occult. Um, being an explanation for why some of these uh, alien visits are what they are. I, I find that to be the same thing, too. We, we've done some profiles on alien cults mm-hmm. um, uh, where the occult, the witchcraft, seances, all that stuff usually is behind uh, the lives of these people who have these very strong and powerful abduction testimonial yeah. kind of things that are that are terrifying. Yeah. And, and that kind um, of thing. So Hugh Ross did a really good job with that. I don't know if you... Um I've heard of his book. I haven't read that yet. Yeah, the one, it's uh, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. Yes, yes, um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I uh, I draw some a lot of that about the occult from, from what his mm-hmm. take on it is. Thank you for tuning in today. If you've enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Leslie Wickman, Do join us live on Zoom this October, where Watchman Fellowship will be featuring Dr. Wickman live on our Atheist and Christian Book Club. Leslie will be talking more about her book, God of the Big Bang, and will be open to taking questions and having further dialogue with us about issues of science and faith. For more information on how to join us, it is free. You can visit our book club website at atheistchristianbookclub.com. That's atheistchristianbookclub.com for how you can join us live and for free in October with Dr. Leslie Whitman. And invite a friend or two. Links will be available in the notes section of this episode for more information, including how to get a copy of Leslie's book and the article she wrote for CNN. And for more information about Apologetics Cults or our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, and a wide variety of information on world religions, do visit our ministry's website at watchman.org. That is watchman with an A dot O-R-G. For Good Heavens and Watchman Fellowship, I'm staff apologist Daniel Ray. Soli Deo Gloria.